Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. And Pete's Crit! Hello! Absolute time, guys. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by doctors Sam Mazur, Alice Schenk, and Zach Hodges. Say hi, team! Hey! Hello! Full team, wide spectrum of pediatric care talked about today. Guest tonight is Dr. Nada Malik, who teaches us about rapid responses. It's great whether you're a hospitalist, a med student, an intensivist. But before we get into the amazing content, Sam, can you remind us about our show? Absolutely, Justin. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And we are your on-air critical care consultants, the PedsCrit team. Yes. And today, we're talking to Dr. Nada Malik. Nada is a pediatric intensivist at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She has a master's in biochem and molecular biology from Hopkins, after which she did her medical residency chief resident year at VCU and her critical care fellowship, like Jerry Zimmerman and myself, at Children's <laughs> National Hospital. Nada now serves as the physician chair for both the Pediatric Early Recognition and Resuscitation Committee, as well as the Late Rescue Collaborative. You can catch me monthly at her critical care, morbidity and mortality conferences. I am so excited that we've recruited her for the big screen. That's great. She's got our early recognition and our late rescue covered. The full, the full <laughs> timing. If you're in the middle, we'll do another episode. No, she she helped the whole time. Today we discuss respiratory distress, addressing hypotension, and other core concepts of things like where to put your hands during a rapid response. Yes, it's like JFK said in his 1961 inauguration: "Ask not what your acute care floor can do for you, but what you can do for your acute care floor." Deep cut reference. The. Thanks, everyone, for tuning back in. Just as a quick reminder, we left off in part one discussing the case of a 14-year-old girl with neuromuscular scoliosis and stage 5 kidney disease who was post-op day one from posterior spinal fusion. Her last charted blood pressure was 84 over 47 with a MAP of 59, and we had reviewed how to approach a patient with undifferentiated shock. Good news, we had successfully sent her to the PICU, but we'll be using this case as an example as we talk about pericode experiences next. But before we dive in, I have to tell you about today's sponsor. So, Cribsiders listeners, it's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. I love food, and man, do they have some unique ways to deliver it. From cocktail-making kits and indoor s'mores fire pits to glasses with a map of your hometown printed on them, Uncommon Goods has everything. They even have a Himalayan salt barbecue plank. So when you shop in Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday season. So listeners, to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash cribsatters. That's uncommongoods.com slash cribsatters for 15% off. So don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. One of the concerns I still have when I'm on inpatient, and certainly when I had as a resident, whenever a rapid is called, is not so much, you know, oh, this is great. We'll like come and try to think about this. But I'm worried, 
is this patient like about to fall off a cliff? You know, is this respiratory distress? Are they tiring out and I've missed it and they're about to poop out? You know, does this person have such severe hypotension that they're gonna stop perfusing? And when you start seeing that this is now becoming like a peri code on the floor, mm-hmm. what are some of the steps that uh, uh, are going through your mind when you're starting to think, I don't know that it's safe to transport this patient? Um, I remember one of the reasons I'm asking this question mm-hmm. is I remember someone taught me very quickly if it's yet that be the person, if you're not sure what to do, be the person to find the inguinal pulse and like don't lose it. Don't lose, yeah. um, are, are there other things when you like are going through your mind when you are kind of hitting this like, oh no moment? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's what scares residents and trainees and, and attendings uh, uh, and knowing maybe how to be more prepared for that can, can address some of that fear from uncertainty. Oh yeah, 100%. So I always think when I get to a patient like this, you know, I'm not thinking one step ahead. I'm thinking like five. So, you know, so let's take us back to the scenario. We're at the bedside, like we're going to move. We're definitely going to move. We're even going to go to the code bed. We don't even have necessarily like a nice complete patient bed. We're going to go to the bed just because this patient needs it so fast. Even before transit, I'm thinking systems wise, like what are all the things that could go wrong, right? So obviously number one, I'm thinking like CV, She's getting her fluids, but I may ask a nurse or a local pharmacist, you know, someone around, can they draw me up like an epi drip? Can they draw me up, you know, like what we call colloquially, like, like an epi spritzer, like a low dose epi. Um, and I'm going to come back to this point, but I'll circle back. Do we need pads on this patient? Is the heart rate starting to become bradycardic? Do we need to transport with pads hooked up to a zolt? I'm also thinking, you know, obviously antibiotics are in, you know, we're measuring, you know, we're on a transport monitor. Someone should be looking at pupils one last time before we move, making sure those haven't changed. Do we have a bag mask on our bed in, to travel with in case we start to lose SAS? Or should we be, if we have respiratory on, should we have them just be put on like a non-rebreather of like 15 liters on the way there? Not only to help with SATs, but to also help with oxygen delivery as you're kind of now teetering on that like DO2 curve, thinking back to like physiology. And the point I made about the epi is then to like go back is to say, you may just have to call a code. You know, if things are that dire and you and you're that worried, don't be the situation where your patient codes in the elevator because you didn't want to call for help. Like sometimes patients are just so peri-arrest that you can't move them without anesthesia, without additional nursing help. Like I mentioned, you know, can someone draw me up epi? If I'm on an acute care floor at 3 a.m. in the morning, no one can draw me up epi. That has to be someone that has to be like an ICU pharmacist or like the on-call pharmacist. And they're not going to come necessarily unless there's a code. You know, I can I can waste more time calling them, having them come down, et cetera. But would it be better just to activate the hospital emergency response system to call a code to get all the parties there, get that code card to the room, have some ICU nurses show up to start to triage all of that and then move the patient when it's safer. A code is not a bad thing. I think, you know, a little bit off topic, but I think sometimes people think of codes as personal attacks on a lack of ability to care for patients. And that's not it at all. A hundred percent. I want to impart that to your listeners. A code is just a manifestation of the natural disease ideology of a patient. It doesn't mean that you failed. If anything, it means that you advocated for the patient, saw that things were going awry. And rather than let ego stand in the way, you asked for more help to get that patient to their outcome safely. 
A couple of points to add on just to echo what you're saying. They're not never go down alone. If a kid is sick and spiraling, know who to call. You know, we always usually all have badge buddies with all kind of phone numbers and things on them. Like I know by heart what the anesthesia airway number is, the the ICU Mm -hmm. attending number, all you know, the charge nurse. Always call for help with your friends. And I think what's also helpful is having some hard stops in mind. You know, if I put the bag valve mask on the kid's face, that probably means it's a respiratory arrest. And I probably should think about calling a code. And if we're asking for code drugs, maybe this is a code. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Sometimes it's like, you know, just because it was a rapid doesn't mean it needs to stay a rapid forever, right? If it smells like a code, looks like a code, it is a code. And we just call the code. It's easier to turn people away than to wish that they were there. So... 100% I agree with you. And there's nothing wrong with calling and attending even during a rapid response, right? Especially in the beginning for some of the new learners, like it's okay to run a rapid by your attending or your senior fellow. You know, I love this term badge buddies. I haven't used that. We're going to have to bring that back to DC Alice, but you know, it's okay to run things by someone um, because everyone is new at this. And even if they're not new at it, sometimes it's just good to get a second set of eyes and there's no harm or shame in asking for help. So yes, definitely don't go down alone. Justin, before we move on, I also have one more thing. You mentioned you mentioned having a hand on the pulse at all times. And I want to just throw this out there for general pediatrics. Every morning when you're examining your hospitalist patients, you document their cap refill and it's either flash or it's slightly delayed and you're going to figure out what to do. We have, we're measuring the pulse of the patient's fingertip with the pulse ox. And so nothing makes me feel more calm if I run to a code and then I see a beautiful pulse ox pleth just pulsing along because that's your pulse. Nothing makes me more nervous, especially on the acute care floor, if, oh, we just can't get this pulse ox to work. Oh, the perfusion's bad. Oh, we got it. We lost it. Oh, it's 70, yeah, 70, yeah. 70. It's a bad <laughs> waveform. In that scenario, I always appreciate someone just having a hand on the pulse, especially if it's a patient who's capital S sick, and you're like, oh, the perfusion. Oh, I just can't get this pulse ox to work. Those are the kids where you're going to need to get in there with the brachial or the fem or something. So I appreciate that point. Yeah, my favorite is when the pulse ox is on the ear, then you know it's over. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like central somehow, you know? Yes, and then you're like, oh, this this is not going. And those are the ones where you're like, why don't you tell me the story as we go to the ICU? So, yeah. Or like the blood pressure just keeps cycling. It, it is, it's not giving me a number, though. Yeah. It's just cycling. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Alice, you want to take it? All right. Yes. Let's finish your service week, Nada. It's Thursday night and you're on call again. You're seven hours away from a golden weekend. Your pager goes off. It's a rapid response that for a four-year-old with acute lymphoblastic leukemia who's currently in consolidation therapy, just got admitted for febrile neutropenia on your assessment. You see a crying four-year-old. She looks like she's in pain, but she otherwise looks okay. Her last temp was 38.3. Tylenol was just given. Her PO intake and urine output have been relatively poor. The kid looks okay. When you talk to the floor team, they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we agree, but the, the rapid was just sort of auto-triggered for tachycardia. So tachy- this is tachycardia in a neutropenic patient with ALL. What are, we, what are we thinking about? What list are we running through in our heads? So I'm... I'm again, I'm, I'm going up there. I'm looking at, you know, my usual patient 
sort of a physical exam. So I'm looking at perfusion, I'm looking at circulation, I'm looking at mental status, I'm looking at the monitor. With this patient, you know, the caveat being that not only you're looking at longevity of hospitalization, but also where are they in their therapy to sort of act as like a signaling method for their immunosuppression. Or, you know, if you really want to think broadly of like certain bugs that they're more susceptible to at certain points of their therapies. So, and this is a point kind of going to Sam's perspective where, you know, what has the floor kind of done already? If anything, if not, then, you know, we can all start together at time zero. And then what are some of the things that I can offer coming into this sort of midway? And so maybe we see a vital sign, you know, we see mm-hmm. that they're tachycardic, they're meeting this criteria. Blood pressure is relatively stable, though. You walk into the room, though, and, and there's some tension, you know, they, they know this kid. It's an adorable child, which makes everything worse. Um, when, uh, uh, you know, are there other things that you're kind of assessing to see what needs to happen? Um, and again, to kind of go back to this triaging of ICU or staying on the floor, what data do you need to, to determine, uh, the setting they need to go to? Sure. So I'm looking at, you know, especially in an onc patient, I'm looking orally like for mucositis, like are they at a risk of dehydration? Are they at a risk of like not being able to tolerate certain medications or feeds, which are going to lead to worsening tachycardia and perhaps some hypotension? I'm looking at mental status. Are they starting to wax and wane? Am I worried about like, you know, any type of CNS issues or cerebral edema. Um, I'm looking for any type of recent lab work, you know, with ALL consolidation therapy, have they been getting nephrotoxic chemotherapeutic agents? And then of course, you know, febrile neutropenia can't miss like the big three, you know, like with NICU babies, like sepsis, 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 you know, do they have a new rash? Are they flushed? Um, have they gotten antibiotics recently within their hospitalization? So looking at both the physical exam findings, but also diagnostically, what are some of the checkboxes that we've ticked so far? And so let's say we have this discussion, you know, in the room and everyone is now kind of in the realization, okay, this is, this is presenting of sepsis. You know, this mm-hmm. is a sepsis in a febrile neutropenic patient. Nursing feels, you know, pretty short staffed this evening, feeling rough. But, you know, with discussions, it's like, oh, well, we haven't done antibiotics yet. They haven't okay. gotten fluids in yet. Mm-hmm. And this patient doesn't really meet ICU criteria. As the floor person, you know, this seems just like high school promo all over again. Just a terrible rejection <laughs> where the, the PICU has come in to save the day, has confirmed that, yes, this patient is quite, quite capital S sick. And they will be staying on the floor. And so in these cases where, you know, maybe nursing is very concerned, Mm -hmm. the resident is very concerned. It's the overnight resident. You know, it's August. They're feeling uncomfortable. How do you advise reconciling this tension or advise the floor team when you're maintaining care of the patient that is not being accelerated to the ICU like the other patients? Sure. So this is a conversation where the crux of the RTs really come into play, right? And Sort of what I've noticed in my years of doing this is that the success of an RRT hinges not necessarily on medical knowledge or medical capabilities, but almost in the communication aspect of things. So this is a case where you still have to talk to the team, like the ICU coming in 
you know, saying no as a mic drop and then walking right back out is not going to suffice, even though they don't quote unquote meet ICU criteria. So what I think behooves the ICU in a professional aspect is to explain what doesn't meet ICU criteria for their perspective, right? Is to say, this is a patient, I'm looking at this patient, their perfusion is still intact, their mental status is still intact, they're acting appropriately, there are still some acute care interventions that can be done and this patient is stable in the meantime with no interventions that seem to be immediate. And then I would say, but what are you seeing from from an acute care floor, right? I would hear their concerns and I would say, this is what would make me concerned. So having sort of like a handshake agreement between the ICU and the floor of these are some of the things in this patient that if the patient did change in an hour or two would call me back. Like, let's say the fever goes to greater than like 39. Let's say all of a sudden the blood pressure is now in like the 80, like less than the 90th percentile for age. You know, there's two hours of little to no urine output. Or all of a sudden she becomes increasingly sleepy despite like it being daytime or something like that. So I would have some concrete numbers that are realistic, both from a floor and an ICU perspective. So for example, you know, from a floor's perspective, I would say the heart rate can't be something like a heart rate of 120. Like it should be something more like the 140s to 160s. And from an ICU perspective, you can't say something like a heart rate in the 220s. Like it has to be something that would ideally be a red flag before that. But two strict, two sort of two strict guidelines, one having vital sign parameters that are concrete and realistic for the patient that if they were to reach them would re-engage the ICU and the acute care floor. And second, having a realistic time parameter in which to call the ICU back, whether it's an hour. I usually don't go beyond two hours, especially from that first rapid. What you don't want to say is if in six hours, the heart rate is 200, give me a call because yes, you know, and in that time, what you're doing is you're leaving the acute care floor without a lifeline. And if they all of a sudden have, are intimidated or have a fear of calling for help, that's when the person that will ultimately suffer is the patient. So you don't want that. You want there to be a collegial relationship where I am not taking this patient right now, but that doesn't mean I won't ever take them. I will take them if they change. And these are the changes that would make me warrant a reassessment. Call me back if the patient starts to do, you know, A, B, C, or D. And then I'm happy to come back and reevaluate the patient for ICU admission. Not a... Do you think that in a conversation where it's tachycardia and the nurse is concerned, do you think that the crux of the matter might be, I, as a bedside nurse, am really worried that I'm not going to be in the room, my patient's literally going to code, and then and then your perspective from as the PICU provider is, I am so sure that this patient will not arrest right now based on all of these criteria. Let me tell you what would make me worry that the patient is heading towards sort of a peri-arrest situation. Sure. And I'd ask the nurse why she specifically feels that this patient, if left sort of, you know, if she were to leave the bedside, what are her worries? You know, are they, it may not just be the vital signs. It may just be that maybe she feels overwhelmed in her assignment. Maybe she has another sick kid, or maybe this kid just has a lot of other things going on, like a lot of meds, a lot of rescue therapies, things like that. And maybe the assignment, if possible, needs to be shifted a little bit, right? I think that's when you have to kind of 
specifically make sure the nurses are heard. Um, I think a lot of the times RRTs tend to be physician to physician conversations, but you got to respect the nurses and that they're at the bedside. They're there minute to minute. So they need to be part of this triangle too of disposition. And you need to ask them, you know, what are you most worried about? And what makes you unable to leave this patient's bedside? Because then it may turn into a conversation of resources rather than just patient acuity. But I think for the most part, if you also, if you address everyone in the room as equals and literally just say like, I'm seeing this as an ICU provider and honestly ask, is there something else that I'm not seeing? Because remember you got here, you know, at your time zero, but that's not the acute care floors time zero. So maybe she is waxing and waning and you're catching her on like an upswing, but like two minutes ago, she was like slumped over in mom's arms. You know, you weren't there, so you can't say, but the nurse was and the acute care team probably was. So having an open mind and a respect for, tell me if I'm not seeing something, you know, and as long as there isn't anything that jumps out at you, you know, you can continue with that script of this is what I'm seeing. This is what would make me concerned. Please call me back if A, B, C, or D happens. And then, you know, just do a gut check at the end and just be like, is everyone in agreement with this plan? Yeah, I was going to add that the communication is great. And I think like there's been times where just if everyone has a plan they feel okay with, it's great. And I feel like I won a lot of points as a resident where it was like, if the concern is like lack of time to observationally, as a resident, I can plant here, you know, outside the room or inside the room instead of going back to the workroom, you know, would that make everyone feel more comfortable? And so many times like that was such a big winner where you can kind of build rapport with the nursing staff and things. But I think really just making sure that like everyone's okay with the plan was something that over time, it took me a while to realize people just want to be reassured, validated and have like a plan of what's next because I'm, you know, it's like any console. I'm just worried and scared and want to make sure I'm doing yeah. right by the patient. A hundred percent. People just want to be heard and they want to know that you're, that you'll still be there for them, right? No one wants to feel like they're just left alone. Sorry, Sam. No, I was just going to say before we wrap up, you know, we're talking about this case where it was an auto triggered rapid response. Um, how do you feel about that? <laughs> So that's another subtly hidden loaded question. So th there are a lot of early warning systems out there, both for pediatric and adults, um, patient care populations. Um, pediatrics tend to use like the pews, infamous pews as an overarching pediatric early warning score. Um, I think that that can be broadly applied to your previously healthy child coming in with one system involvement of pathology. I don't think it necessarily covers the increasing amounts of complex care patients that we've seen, and I don't think it covers the two big, broad patient populations that I see in my large academic center, which is congenital heart children and patients with hematologic and oncologic concerns. And that's reflected in the literature because there actually are separate warning systems for both of those patient populations that have been validated. C-Choose is the one coming out of Canada that's validated for like um, children with congenital heart disease. There's a lot of, out of Vanderbilt and St. Jude's coming out for patients with oncology processes because, you know, the congenital heart patients, if you look at how a pews breaks down, it's, you know, rampant or it's like red flag trigger warning is like tachycardia. But in congenital heart disease patients, bradycardia is something you also need to be worried about. So C-Choose takes that into account. In hemonc patients, like we talked about with this case, you know, they're sometimes always tachycardic. They're in pain. They're, you know, they're more febrile than often than they're not, you know, and sometimes some of those 
don't always signal as much extremists as other patients. Sometimes it does. So those early warning systems take that into account too. And what I would love to see, and I don't think we do a lot of now, is sort of different early warning systems for different patient populations, but it's definitely something to think about. And do you notice that there's a big difference, especially in your institution, between early warning systems that have a call to a provider and early warning systems that call, that have a call to an automatic rapid response. For example, I get plenty of calls, especially in adult, in adult hospitals, I get plenty of calls, sepsis firing, do, what do you want to do? You know, when you get calls constantly for a temperature of 99.0 rather than 98.6, right? And it's fine to call me as the, as the frontline provider, but to call the ICU with that, that's why I was curious what, what you see the difference in. I do think it leads to a lot of calls. I do think, you know, if we actually look at our data on a granular level, there's a large percentage of rapid responses that don't escalate to the intensive care unit and are called purely on an automatic PUSE trigger system. But I think if you if you broke it down, and I haven't with our data, but if you look at the positive predictive value of that data then in terms of do we miss patients, I would hope that we miss less patients when there's an automatic trigger. So I would be hesitant to take away that automatic trigger because I feel like we would then miss patients who should have a rapid response called and maybe wouldn't if we were just lying on subjectivity. So it kind of goes back to the standardization of medicine is that sure, it leads to more activations overall, but I'm hoping that within those activations, we've caught a few good patients who really were saved because of that system. Maybe this is a good opportunity. One of the things we try to do for all Cribsiders episodes is addressing issues of, of health equity because it really comes into every topic um, and we want to be understanding of how this influences. Can you talk a little bit about the overlap of ICU care or of these rapid responses from a health equity lens? I would love to. I think this is a great topic that I think we're just now beginning to embrace in medicine, but we shouldn't be, right? We're like very beyond the times in this situation. So I think let's start with just the rapid responses themselves, like always include the family, even if the patient doesn't go to the ICU or even if the family isn't there, like call them and tell them that there was a rapid, kind of like on the same vein that you call your attending. It's just fair because what you don't want, and this has happened to me, is the family walks in in like the midst of the RRT. And then they're just like, what is happening to my kid? And why didn't anyone tell me? So you don't want there to be that level of, you know, in transparency, you want the healthcare to be transparent. And you may have that anyway, because maybe you were calling as they were walking in, but at least they'll know that you try to inform. So definitely try to include the family. If they're not there, make an extra effort to include them. If they are there, update them, right? Usually if I see a family member, they're usually scared at all the activity of an RRT. They're like cowering in the corner and you feel bad because this is their kid overall. Like, you know, so I go over and I update the family myself as the ICU provider, regardless of whether the patient is coming up to me or not, to sort of explain my thought process, like we talked about earlier, but in more like layman's terms, but just to tell them what I was telling the team so they don't feel like I'm leaving them out of the loop, which is not my intention or not anyone's intention, obviously. I think a big part lying into health equity aspect is sometimes if English is not their first language, ask for an interpreter. On-person interpreter is always best, but if not, then there's a Marty. But communicating with someone in their native language, even if they are functional in English, it's still communicating with their native language is still helpful. And I say this as a bilingual person, like 
I know that translating from one language to the other 100% is never translated. There's always going to be little things that you're going to leave out. So if you can try to update the family with the language of their preference. I think the second thing that goes into, especially from an ICU perspective, is there's always a bias towards like certain disease processes, especially pain. A lot of our patients with complex chronic conditions, we tend to, I think, underestimate their pain. We're like, oh, they're just like this at baseline. You know, so don't assume what they're like at baseline. Ask the parents, ask their providers, you know, ask the acute care team who has been taking care of them for longer. What are the signs of pain in this patient? It may not be as readily apparent as tachycardia. They may be on meds that blunt this response, but maybe it's like a grimace or a tilt of like their hand or a clonus. But think about what are their manifestations of pain and how can we treat that? Because you don't want someone to suffer just because you don't believe them. And especially in pediatrics, so many of our patients are nonverbal, whether it's from age or developmental delay, that they still deserve to be treated as humans and to live in peace. One of the, the comments you mentioned too, especially with the, the interpreter services and language um, is uh, we, we talked about it on a top 10 articles of pediatrics episode where talked about the prevalence of people that don't have uh, comfort with English and how they had twice the odds of experiencing adverse events. And I think especially in uh, these types of situations where perhaps a rapid is because of an adverse event or, you know, you're at a higher acuity setting where your states for an adverse event become even greater. It just seems like this would be a confluence of, of creating the kind of a perfect storm of, of really knocking people, not including uh, individuals with less English proficiency. This has been so wonderful. You know, I think we've gotten to talk a lot about a lot of great cases, a lot of, of general concepts for how to not only survive a rapid response, but really to thrive. And I would love uh, if, you know, of the listeners that we have, whether it's med students, residents, advanced practice practitioners, attendings, what are some of the key takeaway points that you would like our audience members to, to walk away with from this episode? Sure. So I think the vibes of the RT, right, are going to be communication is first. Like come into the patient's room with an open mind. Um, I would say as a provider of either side, acute care, ICU, if you get called because of patient concern, examine the patient yourself, put your hands on them. Don't just rely on the monitor. Don't rely on the ancillary like lab studies and vital signs, x-rays, like all of that is great and helpful. But as a physician, put your hands on the patient and know how that patient has changed, if anything. And then number three, don't be afraid to escalate, whether that's a rapid response, whether that's a code, Zach said it best, like don't go down alone, right? You're not in this alone. Don't let your ego get in the way. We don't have to be superheroes. It's a team sport. Um, and number four, don't underestimate your stakeholders. They don't stop at the physicians. They include the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the families. So try to take each and every one of their opinions into account, knowing sure, like I'm I'm not going to be naive. I know that that's going to elongate your time at a rapid response anymore, and we're all busy, but that's going to save you a lot of time in the future from having repetitive RRTs because there's still someone out there that 
feels uncomfortable, doesn't feel heard, still doesn't like the way the patient looks. So hopefully one thorough RRT will help in the long run. Um, number five, think out loud, explain your reasoning to your patient. And if you need help with your reasoning, don't be afraid to call to escalate to a badge buddy, to an attending, to think an RRT out loud. There's no like time limits on a game show where it's all on you, right? It, don't be afraid to ask for help and and think out loud, even with people, other ICU people on stage. So those are the top five. I love that. And I love the, the teamwork component and the not doing it. And I strive to approach rapid responses with the same calm equanimity as a respiratory therapist in a respiratory distress yeah. uh, uh, yeah. rapid. I mean, they walk in and the attendings, the doctors, the nurses are, are panicking and they are troubleshooting the machine or, or yeah. changing out with with this calm demeanor that the value that they bring is really, I think, underappreciated in the, in the peri codes, especially, I think yeah. it really comes out. They're amazing value adds. So yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Thank you. This was so great. Are there anything else that you want to plug for our listeners that they should check out that they should um, do if they're an inspiring intensivist or, or QI person or MBA person or, or, coffee drinker or something that you think uh, uh, our listeners should check out? So definitely, I would say the AHQI. So that is a consortium of like healthcare quality initiatives nationwide, both adult and pediatric. Um, it looks at different metrics, but also ways of examining those metrics. I would also say that everyone interested in QI should become familiar with CMS, which is like the Center for Medicaid Services, because that really oversees a lot of our healthcare policy. And my personal belief, especially getting into this from a business perspective, is that a lot of the opportunities for improvement in healthcare aren't necessarily like hospital organization based, they're like policy based, right? And so where does that policy come from? And from a trainee perspective, a lot of those things are regulated from the Medicaid umbrella. So understand how that works. And CMS actually has the most thorough data on healthcare as an industry, as a, like from a profitable side, from a multiple entries to barrier side. And it looks at healthcare, not just from like hospitals and physicians, but all of your like stakeholders from pharmaceutical companies, med tech, you know, the new boom in artificial intelligence. I think that's really the next key for like our generation of physicians is how are we going to safely integrate artificial intelligence into medicine without it taking away the art and the compassion that we bring as individual physicians. Uh, what a great way to end. Uh, thank you again, Anata, so much for, for joining us, for sharing your, your time, your expertise, uh, your experience. I think this is an extremely helpful episode for, for people on all levels. So we appreciate you for coming on both the Crib Ciders and Peach yeah. Crit podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. This has been another collaboration between the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. And the Peach Crit team. It's for the six kids. It's for kids. the six kids. So get your show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter at our website at www.thecribsiders.com. 
We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, or you can email us anytime at thecribsetters at gmail.com. We, we usually respond. We're real nice. A special thanks to our wonderful producers for this episode, Dr. Sam Mazur, Dr. Alice Shanklin, Dr. Zach Hodges, and our showrunner for all episodes, Dr. Sam Mazur. Once again, what a star. What a great guy. Just, it's wonderful to have him. Uh, we also want to say thanks to our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Zach Hodges. I've been Alice Shanklin. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I mean, I'm kidding. This is Sam Mazur. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs>